Highway Hi-Fi podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations. You have found the internet's finest podcast for music that bends but doesn't break. Today, like every day, we're going to start you off with a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more than I I'm going to go first today, and my trivia, the non-audio trivia, is going to be called Tributaries. Huh? See? I came up with one. All right. That's good. I like it. Yeah, thanks. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to name a band. It is a cover band or tribute band, and you need to tell me <laughs> what the real band is that they're covering. What's, what's the band they're paying tribute to? So like if I said proxy music, you would know that it was... Roxy music? Very good. Perfect. Okay. okay. This, is, this sounds fun. All right. Here we go. Number one, Abattoir. I would guess ABBA. It is ABBA. So maybe it's Abba Tuar. Okay. okay. <laughs> Metal Liquor. Metal Liquor. Um, I don't know. Metallica. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. No way, sis. Oasis? Oasis. Very good. Okay. All right. Are we them? It's got to be Devo. That's what I was actually hoping you'd say. That's what I would have said, too. It's R.E.M. Are we them? Oh, gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. All right. Here comes my favorite one. The The cover band's name is Still Bjorn. <laughs> it's a good name. Right? St- Still Bjorn. <sighs> Bjork? No, it's it's also another ABBA one. There are lots okay, of Okay, I was that's my my guess, but I didn't think you would do that to me twice. The next one is Hayseed Dixie. Hayseed Dixie. ACDC and they're like a country band. There yeah, you go. Okay. But yeah, just <laughs> that's, that's it. Good idea. <laughs> the next one is We Got the Meat. <laughs> is it, um, I'm guessing it's a uh, meatloaf-inspired uh, go-go band, the Go-Go's. <laughs> You're so close. It's the Go-Go's. Uh, it's an all-male Go-Go's. Oh, did you? I think you said meatloaf-inspired go-go band. Okay. Well, no, I'm, you got yeah, it. Yeah, I'm at the Go-Go's. Yep. Perfect. You got it. But it's it would be great if it was meatloaf-inspired. <laughs> this one is called Petty Theft. Tom Petty. There you go. Nice and easy. That's that. That's a good. That's a clever name, though. Next one is no. Yes. Very good. Okay. The next one is strange love. Strange love. Hmm. I don't know if I'm gonna get that one. It's Depeche Mode. Probably my least favorite one of any of these, but I included okay. it anyway. Yeah, I get it. Now the last two I really like a lot. But I do think they're a little bit more difficult. Okay. All right. The first one is called The Cover Band. Is it just the band? 
Yes, it is. Okay, good. I love that one. Glad I got that one. (laughs) That's really good. Um, Then the last one is unnecessary umlauts. (laughs) Motorhead? Motley Crue. Oh, gosh, yeah. (laughs) That that is a good band name right there. Yeah, they... Yeah, some, that was that was good. I like that one. There were a lot of a lot of really good. Ones. All right, that's good. I like it. All right, I'm calling this trivia selling out, and this is has to do with our uh, subject matter today. And so you don't need to tell me the name of the band. You don't need to tell me the name of the song. I want you to tell me the name of the product that these songs were used to advertise for in a commercial. It will be a notable commercial or commercial campaign. It should be. Pretty easy. Something you should know. Okay. Do I get bonus points for knowing the band and the song? Do we get anything for that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can have as many bonus points as you want. Thank you. Yeah. If you know the name of the band and song, well, I'll take it. But it only counts if you get the correct product. All right. So here we go. There's going to be seven tracks, but they're short. Track one. Track two. Track three. they're selling i have an idea of what they're selling on a few of them on most of them i think after i heard them i was really hoping you would let me do band and song because this is the i got i got a lot of those but i think i'm doing i think i'll do okay on the products oh yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) all right we're gonna go ahead and move right into turntable talk we will come back at the end of the show and uh, give you the answers to the to the quiz. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. We're going to start today with the story of two kids. Both are dying to hear the Beatles. It's 1964. In London, a kid is unwrapping a thin package that he received in the post. He had been waiting for weeks. When it finally arrived in his letterbox, it was only a couple days before Christmas. 
As he ripped away the paper, the four familiar faces, pasted on a seven-inch square, stared back at him, smiling in their normal, beetly manner. He beamed at how bona fide it was. Proudly bannered across the top, it read, The Official Beatles Fan Club. Written in red block lettering just below it read, Another Beatles Christmas Record. He stole downstairs to his family's record cabinet. He threw his dad's dizzy calepsy to the side and slid out his new treasure from the sleeve. The record was thin, papery, and surprisingly flexible. The front had a plastered label with a silhouette logo of the boys, and again, a reassuring message that this product was exclusively for official Beatles fan club members. He gave a quick glance at the B-side. It was completely black and unmarked. No matter, one side of this rarest of gifts from his favorite band was all he needed. He placed the record on the turntable and switched the dial to read 45. He also slid out a folded sheet that had been placed in the sleeve. Unfolding it like a map to El Dorado, it revealed a couple more photos of the band, one complete with a Merry Christmas and their signatures. He thought for just a moment that maybe they had actually signed that piece of paper, but quieted his excitement quickly, as it seemed, well, quite printed. There was also instructions on how to start a pen pal ship with a fellow Beatle fan in the States. Might be fun, but he was not too fond of writing. Again, it spoke of the rarity and exclusivity of it all, and implied that it might be an effective instrument in making his mates jealous. He laid the slip down to peruse it more carefully after he started listening. Before playing the record, he took a couple of three-pence coins from a cup that his dad kept by the player and placed them carefully around the label. From past experience with this flimsy type of disc, he knew he needed to weigh down the center a bit. He lifted the stylus from its perch and laid down the needle on the edge. Everybody, this is Paul, and I'd just like to thank you all for buying our records during the past year. We know you've been buying them because the sales have been very good, you see. Don't know where we'd be without you, really, though. In the army, perhaps. Oh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the records <laughs> as much as we've enjoyed melting them. <laughs> no, 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 that's wrong. Making them. We're in number two studio at the moment at EMI, taping this little message for you. Across Europe, a kid in Moscow slinks around a corner. Nervously glancing up and down the street, he walks quickly into a door of an apartment building. He checks the building numbers carefully and takes a deep breath before knocking. His friend had told him about his uncle's comrade, who had recently built a lathe-cutting machine and had copied several rock and roll records. He even had that enigmatic rock band from the West, the Beatles. This kid and his friend had talked about this band and the legends of hordes of girls screaming and dancing. A few years ago, the authorities passed a law against bootlegging Western music as an attempt to stop the steel yagi, the style hunters, hooligan culture, hipsters. He guessed that meant him. It was a risk, but he knocked. A man called out from behind the door. The boy answered, Rankinistat? Bone music? The door cracked, and a smoking man eyed the kid. Rubles? he asked. The kid flashed him a few coins. He opened the door, ushered the kid in, and shut it behind them. The man eyed the kid expectantly. The kid asked if he had rock music. The Beatles? The guy nodded and held up two fingers. 
The kid got very excited. Two songs? The man shook his head. Two rubles. The kid understood and gave the man his money. He left the kid in the front room of the apartment. A minute later, he, he returned. He's holding a circular cutout of an x-ray of a foot. The middle had a small circle burned into it with a cigarette. It was entirely unmarked. He gave it to the kid and said, Beatles. The kid smiled as he eyed the film. He felt the shallow grooves over the translucent bone image. The man made him tuck the x-ray into his shirt and lectured him. Don't pull it out until you're home. Don't tell your parents. Don't tell your friends. You don't know this place and you don't know me. Even though x-ray records were still fairly clandestine items, the authorities were well aware of their existence and on the lookout for bootlegs. The kid understood and ran out the door. He tried to act naturally all the way home. His parents were still working. He went to their old gramophone player, which they almost never used. Prior to this, the only records that he had, that he had heard were a couple of blue-colored playable inserts from a copy of Krugazor magazine. They were produced by the government and had some stories and music on them, but not like this. Despite not having heard anything yet, he already cherished this sheet. It showed him his own bravery, showed him freedom, showed him that there was another way. The bone music sheet spun at 78 RPM, and he put the needle down. The sound was horrendous. Scratches, pop, static, screeches. But under it all rang out a guitar, and then drums. Barely audible, it still sounded like a symphony to him. The kid didn't know it yet, but the disc only had a lifespan of about seven plays before it was completely useless. Finally, he heard them, singing in a language that was as enthralling as it was unintelligible. The voice sang out, I can't get no satisfaction. Today, the story of the most utilitarian format of vinyl record, one that was embraced by capitalism and communism, that was disposable enough to be embossed into cereal boxes and mailed as postcards, but valuable enough to create collector's frenzy, embraced by the likes of ABBA, Richard Nixon, Jack White, and Elf. Auditory planned obsolescence. Today, part one of a two-part saga on the strange reign of flexible records. Now, the what and why of FlexiDisc. The FlexiDisc was born out of necessity. Vinyl, for all intents and purposes, is not a cheap material. Shellac, which was the precursor to vinyl used in 78s, is also not cheap material, and extraordinarily brittle. Creating a cost-effective, transportable, and durable alternative would allow for widespread distribution of audio. The FlexiDisc can provide it all. Simple and cheap mass advertisement, novelty gimmickry, collectible rarity, personal mementos, and subversive bootlegs. The origin of the format goes back nearly as far as the invention of the phonograph record. In 1905, a patent was taken out on talking postcards, where the sender could record an audio message on a resin-covered postcard using a special adapter to their gramophone. By the middle of the decade, there was a craze for singing mail. And in the 1930s, hit-of-the-week cardboard records were sold at newsstands. However, the cost of a couple nickels provided to be too high for the Depression era, and the trend went relatively dormant soon after. That was until the baby boom. The post-war era brought two important waves. One, the recording industry in general was revitalized, and two, quenchless consumerism was back. 
the flexi disc had found a home and a purpose. In 1962, American company Avatone began producing commercially available flexible records, which they called sound sheets. The records were extremely thin, flimsy, and often made with polyvinyl chloride rather than vinyl pellets, which made them cheaper than the normal vinyl records. They were also truly flexible and durable, so that meant that they could be bound into the text with a perforated seam without any requirement for a hard binding, making them perfect for magazines, newspapers, or any other commercial box. In the early days, sound sheet records cost somewhere between 4 and 6.3 cents each to produce. They could be churned out from the factory quickly. With low cost, relative durability, and ease of transportation, it was not long before these sound sheets became a marketer's dream come true. However, they had their drawbacks. These flexible discs were not nearly the quality of their full-sized brethren. The sound quality for the most part was horrible, with less frequency range and much more surface noise and scratching. As more companies would use vinyl, covered paper, and cardboard, the sound quality became even worse. The flexi discs weren't designed to last and degraded very quickly when repeatedly played. They were extremely light, usually 4.5 to 6.5 grams, compared to the usual 40 grams of the time. And we all know as collectors that records are now as heavy as 120, 160, 200 grams. The lightness of the disc meant that the stylus's weight could stop a record dead in the groove. Listeners would often have to get creative to play their flexies, sometimes placing them on top of a regular record to play, or stacking coins in the center to increase friction and keep the flexi disc at a normal rotation. I think I taped one to a record and so, so that it would keep spinning. They also warp really fast, like, Scotty, we need the warp drive operational now, fast. And the normal size sound sheets could typically only play a couple minutes of sound on each side of a disc, which you often needed to be on hand for the playing of to make sure that it made it all the way through. Interestingly, throughout the 1950s, the UK had been using a similar format with crude cut spiral stylus groove records. These proto-flexi discs are likely a strong contributor to the Beatles being early embracers of the technology almost at the onset of the trend with their bizarre fan club Christmas discs. More, more on that soon. After the flexi boom started in the States, British vinyl pressing companies such as Lintone soon licensed the manufacturing process from Avatone and created the more descriptive name Flexi Disc, which they hoped would make people connect the product with record discs rather than sheet music. I'm not sure it mattered much at that point, but either way, Lintone became a huge name in the flexi disc game and would be the company the Beatles used. There's no one moment when flexible disc broke big, but several moments throughout the 60s really showed the power of the new disc in three main areas. Band promotions, children's records, and mass advertisement. But before that, it was a couple educational discs from National Geographic that introduced many households to flexi-disc. The National Geographic Society released a 1964 book called Song and Garden Birds of North America. With it, it had six double-sided clear flexi-disc of bird songs to accompany the pictures. And in 1965, the magazine dedicated an issue to the recently deceased Winston Churchill, including a two-sided 12-minute recording of newsman David Brinkley giving audio commentary of the funeral and... It played snippets of famous speeches from the British Bulldog himself. Navy enlisted men on foot draw the gun carriage. On it, 
a coffin covered by a flag, and on a black velvet cushion, the Order of the Garter. There were 4.5 million issues sold, and the FlexiDisc was brought into the public consciousness, and the potential for the format was demonstrated to advertisers worldwide. It wasn't long before the flexible disc were everywhere. Between 1963 and 1969, as noted before, the Beatles sent all their UK fan club members special Christmas flexi-discs that usually contained random greetings, bad jokes, avant-garde nonsense, secret messages to Mal Evans, and occasionally a, a real song. Originals are extremely collectible, despite being mostly just silliness. Political marketing saw potential, and these records started being used in ad campaigns. Though Reagan used flexis early in his 1966 governor's race, it was the Richard Nixon campaign that famously mailed to over a million homes of registered voters in key states a paper record with this bright piece of Nixon's the One propaganda. America's in trouble today not because her people have failed, but because her leaders have failed. And what America needs are leaders to match the greatness of her people. Who's the one who can provide the leadership America needs? Nixon's the one. Not to be outdone by Tricky Dick, Alfred E. Newman was another innovator in the, pla- in the flexi-disc revolution. Mad Magazine regularly included plastic-covered cutouts or flexi-discs containing music and story discs with certain special issues. Some of the more famous of these include Gall in the Family Fair, which is an all-in-the-family parody, a single called Makin' Out, the octuple-grooved track It's a Super Spectacular Day, which had eight possible endings, the spoken word Meet the Staff, and the infamously highbrow cut It's a Gas. Other magazines got into the action as well. Nat Geo famously included the field recording Songs of the Humpback Whale in a popular issue, while Porto Mag High Society gave subscribers a, su- a surprise flexi-disc in their special holiday edition or stocking called Gloria Leonard Makes Love to You Live on Record. Receiving both of those magazines in the mail on the same day was guaranteed to lead to divorce and terminal solitude. Ingeniously, in the 80s, computer and gaming magazines included flexis with vinyl data on them, which is basically a game or software in sound format. Users would have to record the data to a tape that was compatible with their system. Flexi discs were perfect for music magazines. Trouser Press would often include flexis with their hipster criticism. From 1980 to 83, Flexipop magazine made a name for itself for always including a a flexi-disc with a bizarre rare recording from a popular band. The most famous being ANTS, which is Adam and the Ants' bastardization of the disco classic YMCA.
Unknown bands would occasionally be fortunate enough to get included randomly in magazines, sometimes to fantastic results. Check out a band called The Creamers with their synthastic punk song, Little Way Lie, from a short-lived 70s music rag called Take It. It's a white Stepping back a bit, one could argue, probably inaccurately, that Bowie's stardom was saved by Flexible Disc. In the summer of 72, the Ziggy Stardust album was hitting huge, so big the RCA couldn't keep up with the demand for the record. The production line was backed up, and the company was worried that the teenagers would move on to a different artist if they had to wait for weeks to get the album. Fortunately, the company was able to get Dynaflex Disc, which are slightly better than Flexi, but still only contained about a quarter of the vinyl of a standard disc, to print tens of thousands of stopgap albums. Ziggy stayed on top of the charts, and the crisis was averted. This move started a trend of using cheaper, thinner vinyl, which helped the industry survive the oil crises, but far reduced the sound quality to the ears of discerning vinyl fans. In the weird consumable world of the flexi-disc, several weirdo freebies have turned out to be huge 70s rockers collectibles. Alice Cooper recorded a strange song called Slickback Limousine in an Elvis impersonator style, and it was included in an issue of Enemy Magazine. Mark Bowen is also rumored to have played on the song. The flexi has been bootlegged several times over and has become one of the most desired relics for Alice Cooper collectors. gold flexi disc from ABBA's 77 tour was given as a Christmas gift from a publishing company called Joltignig for Sklogit. <laughs> Rob, <laughs> Ryan, Ryan, let me handle that. <laughs> I think you meant Joltignig Hawken for Yeah, that, um, what Joe said. Uh, anyways, they got it as a Christmas gift from this publishing company, and the kids uh, got it because they sold the publishing company's magazines and books door-to-door in the cold Swedish night. The musician product promotional machine churred along. Johnny Cash had a flexi of Orange Blossom Special included on top of cans of snowdrift shortening. Quaker Oats distributed the loosely defined 
great moments in rock and roll with their product, Granola Dips. The record contains songs from Bon Jovi, The Alarm, The Bangles, The Psychedelic Furs, and John Lennon. And if you play them to the end, you had a chance of winning the prize. However, it is cereal boxes and fast food that truly embraced the power of flexi-discs. The wacky world of cereal box music is quite possibly the most well-known and expansive medium for disposable records. Kids would finish their boxes of sugary breakfast pellets and cut out the thin plastic-coated paperboard disc from the back of the box, throw them on their turntables, and hear their favorite bubblegum pop star or fictional character. In 1956, Wheaties boxes donned what was likely the earliest cereal box record with a bunch of Disney Mouseketeers. By the late 60s and into the 70s, cereal box records were huge with the biggest teen idols and bubblegum pop stars on each collectible box. The Jackson 5 on Alphabets, the Monkees on Frosted Rice Crinkles, Bobby Sherman on Cinnamon Raisin Bran, Kiss on Kiss Crunch, which sounds awful, Panther Man on Frosted Flakes, and probably the most famous of the cereal bands, the Archies on Super Sugar Crisp. It didn't stop with pop stars, though. Life Serial had a rock music mystery game where kids would have to listen for clues and guess songs from snippets. Honeycombs had ghost stories. Toucan Sam, or Richard Simmons, had a workout disc. And cereal brands would create their own bands to peddle their cereal. The Sugar Bears were a made-for-cereal box band on Super Sugar Crisp. Featuring Sugar Bear, Shoopy Bear, Doobie Bear, and Honey Bear... Honey Bear actually was Kim Carnes of Betty Davis Eyes. That got, they got so popular, they managed to release an actual LP. And not to be outdone, my favorite trio, Count Chocula, Frankenberry, and Booberry, released a 1979 disco story and song called Monsters Go Disco. That tale involved the lonely monsters going to a local disco, winning the dance contest, of course, arguing over which cereal they should go home and eat in celebration, and then burying dead hobos in not-so-shallow graves. It's truly terrifying. <laughs> now, don't spin them through the air, man. Put them on the record player. Oh, sorry. All right, uh, Chalk and Frank, it's time to hustle on to the dance floor now for the Disco King Contest. Frank and Barry, you're on, baby. Me? What do I do? Just move with the beat. But what song do you want me to spin, Frank and Barry? Uh, something by my favorite group, the Grapestone Fox. Fast food restaurants also jumped on board the Flexi train. KFC released a Flexi of the inexplicable pop single by Walter Payton called Doing It Right. It was only available with the purchase of a three, five, or nine-piece dinner. Burger King got into bed with ALF, releasing a series of flexi-discs from the Alien as prizes in their kids' meals. Here is the Bruce Springsteen-inspired song called Mel Mac Rock. It's basically the blueprint for the whole study's career. Well, I was born on Melmac on a parquet night. 
McDonald's in 1988 that created the most famous and most notorious flexi promotion. McDonald's had 80 million flexi discs of their menu song pressed for the contest. That's a record that is 80 times platinum before anybody ever hears it. For perspective, Thriller has sold maybe 66 million. So the disc, included in newspapers around the country, had a class learning and then singing the lyrical tongue-twisting song containing all the currently available items at the burger joint. Take a listen. Good morning, class. Today we're going to learn the McDonald's menu song and give a listener out there a chance to win a million dollars. So repeat after me. Repeat after me. No, no. No, no. Oh, okay. Okay. Here goes. Here goes. Big Mac McDLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese filet, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a happy meal, McNuggets, tasty golden french fries, regular or larger size of salad, chef or garden, or a chicken salad, oriental, big big breakfast, egg McMuffin, hot hot cakes and sausage, maybe biscuits, bacon, egg and cheese or sausage, Danny's hash browns, two and four dessert, hot apple pies and Sundays, three varieties of saucer, cone, three kinds of shakes and chocolate, Egypt cookies, and a drink of Coca-Cola diet, Coke and orange, drink a Sprite and coffee, decaf, two, a low fat milk, also an orange juice, I love McDonald's, good time, great taste, and I get this all at one place. Got it? Got it! Okay, now you do it! On 79,999,999 of the disc, the class fails to make it all the way through. But on one lucky record, the class successfully navigates the song all the way to the end, and there's a number to call for the winner to claim the million dollars. The winner was a 13-year-old from Galax, Virginia, named Scotty Landreth. His mom claimed the prize, opened a store, burnt through the money, and was broke within a couple years. The family more or less torn apart. Scotty now works at the local McDonald's. In an article, Scotty and the interviewee try to listen to the famous 180 million disc sent back to him from McDonald's, only to find out the record he cherished and kept as a golden ticket was just a generic, soundless imposter. Like the money or the sound itself, he has no idea where the real thing is. The list of weirdness of flexible discs goes on. The Beach Boys recorded a song called Living Doll, included with California Dream Barbie, which is so creepy that even sex doll expert extraordinaire Brian Ferry blushed upon hearing it. Barbie, Barbie, oh Barbie, you're my California dream. Oh Barbie, Barbie, hey Barbie, you are yummy like I On the other end of the spectrum, soldiers in the Korean War would send home a flexi called Sounds of Korea so their families could, well, share in the experience, I suppose. But the British and Americans weren't the only countries fascinated with making every object into a playable song. The Buddhist country of Bhutan released miniature one-sided playable record stamps in 1972 that, when played, 
trumpeted the national anthem or folk songs. However, the most fascinating story of the power of flexi-discs comes from the Soviet Union, but that will be in part two. Like so much that has to do with the vinyl era, the compact disc pretty much killed flexi-discs dead in the 90s. CDs offered more affordability, durability, and ease of transportation than their flimsy vinyl ancestors. Avatone, likely the last manufacturers of flexi-discs, stopped production of the product in August of 2000, and the format was rendered obsolete. However, as the vinyl format itself completes its Lazarus-like revival, it would not leave the flexi-disc behind. San Francisco independent record manufacturer Pirate Press recognized the usefulness and hipness of the flexi-discs. They contacted Avatone to see if any of the machines they had still existed. They didn't, as they had already all been sold for scrap. However, they managed to get the original patents from the web and work with some engineers to create a machine that could press flexis. And demand has not waned. Heavy Metal Magazine Decibel led the way in the flexi revitalization by being Pirate Press's first major client. The magazine started to include ultra-limited flexis in deluxe editions of the magazines which were aggressively sought after and sold out quickly. Jack White, always on the forefront of vinyl record oddness, had a thousand flexi copies pressed for the single Freedom at 21. He inserted them into oversized helium balloons and released them to the wild as a promotion for his 2012 album Blunderbuss. Despite 16 dolphins perishing, only a couple hundred of the thousand were recovered, making them extremely collectible and expensive. The first on eBay sold for over four grand, and they still fetch several hundred blood dollars when they surface on Discogs. White's third man record release of Jay-Z's Magna Carta also contained a hidden flexi that had to be cut out with a knife from the back cover. Experimental pop group Deerhoof released an album with a full flexi book that contained music and art. Decidedly not experimental pop group, the Foo Fighters have also included flexis as bonuses for LP purchasers. And bands, record labels, and music publications continue to wake into the possibility of flexis as promotional tools and merch table attractions. In 2016, Pirate Press estimated they were producing between 400,000 and 600,000 flexis a year and had recently moved production to a Czech Republic factory to keep up with demand. Somewhat ironically, the format has become more of a collectible item than a cheap, quick promotional throwaway. The sound hasn't significantly improved, but the habit of collecting vinyl for the sake of collecting has increased many times over. The limitlessness and fun of the flexi-disc still gives the format life. Concert tickets, beer bottle labels, musical playbills, and deluxe LP swag. The usefulness of flexi-disc is only restrained by people's creativity about when, where, and how to share music. It is truly a format that was more fun and lasting than the products it hawked. The ideas Flexi spread and the memories they spawned are far more important than any scratchy two minutes of self-destructive sound. Now, when you were a kid, were these much of a thing? Now, I don't remember them too much. I think I had some of them, maybe children's records. I remember playing them. I don't remember what, what they were. Just remember they were like squares. Usually they were, the ones I really remember were like real thin black squares with the, with the record you could see the record inside of it and then you just put those on the turntable but 
I don't remember. God, I wish I remembered more about them. It's really, it's really cool. And it's the part two of this is, is really interesting and not something I'd known much about, even though there are lots and lots of articles and other podcasts about it. It's, it's pretty cool. We're going to be talking in part two about bone music, which will be, I think it's a lot of fun too. Both of these are are pretty fun and they don't cost me anything because I'm not buying flexi discs on Discogs for this. Although, wait, maybe I will buy it. Actually, I might buy an X-ray record. Actually, never mind. I I'm I remember the squares too, and I don't like I didn't know that they were back or that magazines were using them again. I had no idea. I just I just remember them visually more than anything. Yeah, I had no idea either. When we started doing the research for this and you were telling me about it, I looked into it and there are a lot of bands like, I mean, we mentioned the Foo Fighters and Deerhoof and Jack White, but there are a lot of bands that are putting these out every once in a while just as bonuses. It's it's pretty cool. I just, it's also sort of too bad because they don't sound very good and they're hard to play. I mean, the whole whole premise is sort of weird. Like, why would you put out music in an inferior sort of way? If you're actually doing it to be collectible and used, you know, multiple times or I don't know, but it's fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're a lot of fun to kind of pull out. If you're, if you are the kind of person that has other people over to your house, you can pull them out and play them and they're, they look pretty cool and it's fun to talk about them and how you got them. We'll never be in danger of that. So I think we can move right into playing some songs. I'm going to go first tonight with songs, and the song you're about to hear is by a guy named Lee Moses, and the song is called I'm Sad About It. I laid in the bed last night. I had a dream that touched me deep down inside. Oh, yes, I did. Oh. I feel like I want to tell the whole world about it. Dream that she was gone. I'm sad about it. Oh, I'm sad about it. Oh, I'm sad about it. I dream that she was gone. I'm sad about it. Do you know? Son, 
You better believe somebody when they try to tell you things for your own good. Well, when I saw you that day, you were loving my best friend. You promised me you'd be with me till the end. You done hurt me so bad. I'm sad about it. That was Lee Moses with I'm Sad About It from 1967 on Music Horror Records. Uh, my copy is not that single. That single goes single goes for hundreds of dollars. My copy is from a compilation put out this year from Cairo Records, or if you're in Nebraska, Cairo Records. Cairo Records is part of, it sounds like they're a subsidiary in some way of Mississippi Records, and they put out these three amazing soul compilations this year. This compilation was called All of This Goes To, and it's it's amazing. It's one of the it's one of my favorite compilations. I, I wish I wish I would have thought of putting these songs together in that order. It's, they do a really, really good job. Lee Moses was from Atlanta, Georgia, and ended up going into moving to New York and actually was playing alongside his peers like Jimi Hendrix at the time. He was a contemporary of Jimi Hendrix's. And there's even one bootleg of Jimi Hendrix, or allegedly of Jimi Hendrix. It's called like the Lost Jimi Hendrix album. That's actually Lee Moses playing guitar, just kind of goofing around on the guitar, um, which is which is kind of funny. He was a great singer. He had a really cool voice, as I hope you picked up on. And he had one full album called Time and Place, released in 1971, that was reissued recently by Light in the Attic, I think. And I have that reissue. It's it's a fantastic album. It's really wonderful. That song that you heard is not on that. That was just one of his singles. I'm sad about it. it was 67. The album was 71. Anyway, that's Lee Moses. Probably someone that a lot of you haven't heard of. Hopefully you have. Um, if, if you haven't, you should check him out. He's got some, got some great stuff. Every song of his is really good. All right, for my song, I'm going to play a song that we've played a clip before and we've alluded to several times, but... It just needs to be played in whole. This song is called Jimmy Carter Says Yes. Can our government be competent? Jimmy Carter says yes. Jimmy Carter says yes. Can our government be honest Jimmy Carter says yes Jimmy Carter says yes Can our government Be decent and open As the 39th president He has spoken Yes Jimmy Carter says yes As your president I, Jimmy Carter Know it is possible to run a government efficiently Without sin or any corruption I will do my level best Run the government decently Without any statement of eruption Errors and wrongdoings I will reveal to the public For corruption while I'm in office I'll not bargain I'll stand tall like old glory Faithful to the republic Security will prevail As sure as I am the president President Jimmy Carter 
Can our government be competent? Jimmy Carter says yes. Jimmy Carter says yes. Can our government be honest? Jimmy Carter says yes. Jimmy Carter says yes. Can our government be decent and open? All right, with uh, that Nixon propaganda record that we played a little bit earlier and the recent election fiascos, continuing election fiascos in Georgia and Florida, I thought what would be a better time to play a song of honest praise for an honest man. And so I am playing the song Jimmy Carter Says Yes. It is a um, song poem. Uh, like we mentioned before, by a guy named Gene Marshall. And I have it, as most people probably do, on the compilation LP, Beat of the Traps, MSR Madness Volume 1, that was compiled by the uh, NRBQ drummer Tom Ardolino. And which is a great compilation, one of, probably one of the best uh, song poem vinyl compilations. The poem was actually written by this guy named Waski Elwood Walls. And, uh, you know, he sent it in. Gene Marshall uh, put the music to it. It's kind of a kind of fun disco beat. And uh, it is one of the best songs I've ever heard. Joe, the first time he heard it, he said, I think I just found your new favorite song. And he was he was pretty much right. <laughs> that was before he'd heard Ramadama, though. I'd say Jimmy Carter says yes has got bumped a little bit by Hot Dog. My second song is Battleship Chains by a band called Hindu Love Gods.
right, that was a song called Battleship Chains by Hindu Love Gods. You probably recognize the voice that was Warren Zevon singing, and you might have recognized the backing band, but I doubt it unless you know this band. The backing band is Bill Berry, Peter Buck, and Mike Mills, who make up three-fourths of R.E.M. This song and album have kind of an interesting story. Basically, R.E.M. was just goofing around with this guy named Brian Cook, who was in a couple bands in Athens called OOK and Time Time Toy, and they were just more or less having fun a little bit after, you know, at, at, around the time they were getting big in 84. At one point, uh, Warren Zevon happened to come down and play a show with them, and so he played on stage with Michael Stipe, who was also there playing drums and singing, so they're just kind of goofing around. A lineup of that Cook guy plus Barry Buck and Mills actually recorded a uh, single, Have a Good Time Tonight, which was a cover of an Easy Beats tune. Uh, they they called, released it under the name Hindu Love Gods. So that was about 84. A few years go by, and in 86, Warren Zevon has Buck Mills and Barry back him up uh, for his solo album called uh, Sentimental Hygiene. But apparently one night they all got drunk in the studio, and they just blasted out 10 cover cover songs, mostly blues-type songs, and they recorded it in one swoop. And then it was kind of just kind of lost. It wasn't. It was just meant to have fun. It's kind of what R.E.M. did with Dead Letter Office, too. They just kind of got drunk and recorded some songs. But a few years later, Giant Records actually released this under the name Hindu Love Gods, and it was probably a good thing. <clears throat> Reinvigorated Zevon's career, and it probably helped R.E.M. stop from taking themselves too serious as the world's biggest college rock band. So it was a, probably a good thing for both of them. I don't think B- Peter Buck really cared much for it. He said somewhere along the way it took as long to record as it did to listen to it, you know, so they were just kind of having fun. It's most famous for the um, Prince cover of Raspberry Beret, which is amazing. But I chose to go with a different song, probably my personal favorite on the album, called Battleship Chains. Uh, Battleship Chains is a song by a guy named Terry Anderson who was in a band called The Woods. But the song was made famous by the Georgia Satellites. And apparently Zevon heard it and decided we're going to cover that because you make bad decisions when you've been drinking. And they covered it. It's fun, simple, basic. And that's my song. I remember when that album came out and my brother and I were listening to it. And he we didn't know the story behind it at all at the time. But he was saying this is the perfect time for them to do this. Those, those three guys backing Michael Stipe probably have to get away from him. For a little while, <laughs> because just because he's Michael Stipe, and Warren Zevon could probably use a few laughs. So it basically ended up being that story. Just what my brother was guessing worked out. They probably released it knowing that Warren Zevon could use a little bit of help, maybe a little bit of money at that point, because he really wasn't doing probably very good in the early 90s. All right, the last song for the night is a song from a band called Lullaby for the Working Class, and it is their cover of Super Chunk's Home at Dawn. Side 
All right, that was Lullaby for the Working Class again with their cover version of Super Junk's Home at Dawn. I think that this one's even better than the original. It's very different. This is from 1997, and it was on Saddle Creek Records out of Nebraska. The Omaha, Nebraska is where Saddle Creek is. Lullaby for the Working Class is from Lincoln. It was released on a single of theirs called In Honor of My Stumbling, and I think that that version was actually recorded from um, a, a studio and a radio studio doing an interview or something, and they played some songs, and that was one of them, and it's really wonderful. I've loved it since it came out, this version of it. I just remember it just reminds me of walking through a college campus like at Boulder, just with my headphones on, blasting that song. It was perfectly autumnal and fits in right right along with when we're recording these this episode. Very good. I think we need to go finish up some trivia. All right. So as you remember, the challenge was to name the seven products or businesses that the uh, seven clips are used for in commercials. So I'm going to play the seven songs again, and then we'll see how you do. Track one. Track two. Track three. (laughs) 
track five. Track six. Number one, uh, the the song is, not that you care, is I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing by the New Seekers, I think. And it's ended up it ended up being used as an ad for Coke or Coca-Cola. Yep. That version is not the New Seekers. It's the Coca-Cola Choir or something like that. But yeah, the New Seekers. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. But, I knew, I just had that in my head. Okay. But yeah, Maybe you, got, they, you got it. I'll give you points on that. Okay, thanks. All right, the second song, I don't, I mean, I know the song because of the jingle, but I don't know the, I don't know the name of the song or who's doing it, but I, it's for an airline, and I'm I'm going to guess it's United? It is, very good, United. It's Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. Oh, I should have known that, that's, now I feel like a boob. Yep. Okay, <clears throat> I, which makes sense for this episode. Okay, <laughs> the next, the next one is... A song by a band called Yellow, and the song is called Oh Yeah, and it's been used in a lot of commercials, I think. It's most famous for being in Ferris Bueller, and I'm going to go with what I remember, because we're close to Halloween, was Twix. Absolutely. That's the one I remember, too. Very good. Okay. Whew. All right. The next one is The Rolling Stones with Start Me Up, and I really thought this was an Apple product, but I'm going to go with Google instead, some kind of Google Play or something. Uh, very close. It was actually a little bit earlier than that. It had to do with Microsoft Windows. Microsoft paid a ton of money to use it. Okay. I forget how much it was, but I remember it being a big deal. Huh. But yeah, very close. Okay. The next one is Feist with one, two, three, four. And that is, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's an iPod one. Yeah. It was one of those Apple ones with the, with the silhouette people yep. dancing, I think. Yeah, yep. that's what I thought, too. Okay, good. The next one is Nick Drake's Pink Moon, and I think that's from a Volkswagen commercial. Yeah, it's it's weird. We were working at the CD store in Boulder, and I'd never heard Nick Drake, and his box set came in, and somebody bought it. I don't know if you bought it or I don't remember, but we started listening to it a lot, and... Like, within two or three months of that, like, like he'd never been in my periphery, you know, or he, he was, he, I just didn't know him at all. Hadn't heard him. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting into him, and then this commercial comes out, and it's just like, boom, he's everywhere. And, yeah, it's, which is great. I mean, it's great music. People should hear it, so. Good for him, absolutely, or good for whatever. Everybody should know who he is, definitely. Right. I'm glad yeah. that. Glad that that was out there, but yeah, I was a little also disappointed because it had to be ticked off my mixtape list. The last one is, I it's Fly Like an Eagle by Steve Miller, I believe, but I don't know what what the, that's for, what, what commercial that was used in. Oh, you don't remember? I couldn't think of it. It is the U.S. Postal Service. No, I didn't remember that at all. doesn't sound familiar even now. Oh, man. Well, maybe I'm just making that up. I'm pretty sure it's for the U.S. Postal Service. You ever seen Steve Miller in concert? 
don't. Have you? Yeah, of course. Of course I have. <laughs> Why so is I'm it in, of course? I saw him in Ames, Iowa at the, at the, uh, the Cyclone Stadium. <laughs> the Runza. It was, the there were no, Memorial. I don't think there were any Runzas involved, but there was a lot of marijuana involved. <laughs> is, he, is he good? No. No, it's Steve Miller. <laughs> of course he's not good. I don't, I don't mind Steve Miller as, as it goes. I don't ever want to hear him, but. Okay. Yeah, he's not like Eagles or Billy Joel, but he's still Steve Miller. So He's, he's close. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you did a pretty good job on that trivia, I think, overall. I may, maybe one of these times, maybe I'll just do straight jingles because jingles are kind of fun, too, but I didn't want to do that for this one. Anyways, Joe, uh, we're going to go ahead and end it up here. It's around Thanksgiving. So I'm uh, thankful for all our listeners. I'm thankful for for everybody who's given us a chance, and I'm thankful that we uh, were able to keep this podcast going. We're going over a year now, so that's something I'm kind of proud of because you and me usually don't carry forth our projects past just a little bit, so this one's been good. And uh, be thankful for musicians and people who bring you music and show them that appreciation uh, through uh, financial support. Um, buy some records, buy them from an independent record store if you can, um, or from a label or from a musician themselves, um, just help keep everything going. And also if you could go to iTunes and give us a rating there, that will really help with other people finding the podcast even faster. Yep. All right. And everybody have a wonderful day. We'll talk to you later. His mom claimed the prize, opened a store, burnt through the money, and was broke within a couple of days. <laughs> I think we're going to have to come back to that one. Stupid Joe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.